is ride or die bow, bow, bow. and we are back again <laughs> we're bringing it at you everyone wave your hands in the air okay See, when you say back again i think tag team back again <laughs> different tag team different back agains that's my I, back again i think um back streets back all right <laughs> that's a good one too <laughs> That's a good one. We didn't even go on break. I don't know why we're so excited. I think it's because it's been a while since we recorded, actually. It's because we're dumb. It's because we're amazing and we love each other. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, let's get in it. Do we have housekeeping? I don't actually think so. I think we're we're pretty clean right now. Uh, yeah. No housekeeping. Just buy our books. <laughs> yeah. Buy our books. Buy sign our books. up for Patreon. Yeah. Sign up subscribe. for Patreon. Rate and subscribe. <laughs> Smash that subscribe button. No, this is not YouTube. This is not YouTube, but we do love that channel. I don't know why I won't. Why I sometimes I'll, I won't say the name of a thing as if it's like trademarked, and sometimes <laughs> I will. But that's just I don't know. My brain doesn't work in a linear fashion. Um, no, but we were just talking about something that's a little bit in the past. But still prevalent and should be discussed to this day, which is uh, the hashtag publishing paid me created by L.L. McKinney and Toshi Onyabuchi. Claire, well, why don't you tell everyone how publishing paid me started and why? Um, so it was basically it started during sort of the height of what was going on with the protests um, for uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, Tochi and um, L started this hashtag for transparency to show sort of the inequality that exists between black authors and uh, like white counterparts in publishing and how there's a huge discrepancy in how much black authors get paid versus uh, white authors and there were a lot of people sharing their advances on twitter and if you're not in publishing, if you've never sort of, um, if, if you don't know why that's a big deal, it's because we really usually don't share that kind of information <laughs> publicly. Like, like even between friends, it, it's like sometimes a taboo thing to be like, Ooh, how much mm -hmm. you, did you get? Like, what was your advance type of thing, which can be really not good <laughs> because just like in any like employment situation if you don't know what your colleagues are making you're a lot more likely to be taken advantage of so it was uh it, it was a it was a movement to sort of foster more transparency and to help black authors uh find out what they were getting paid get paid more and hopefully that would spread throughout the industry so that all authors of color can also benefit from it eventually but the main focus and the whole um the whole point of it was to talk about black authors pay disparity in, uh, specifically and yeah. it was a wild couple of days <laughs> oh my goodness we were all just sitting here just watching and and being shocked because we were trained to not talk about advances like you were saying Clarabelle and we were also like so surprised that people voluntarily such big people voluntarily gave their advance numbers which I am grateful for I'm, I'm grateful that really big white authors came out and supported the movement and said their advances I do think there was a little bit of an interesting like rewarding people <laughs> how people were rewarded when they like come out to support things is sometimes allies get rewarded more you know than the original people but that's neither here nor there about this conversation that can be a different pre-chat I am grateful that they came forward and also you know some people like it it does show that like at the beginning of their career like they didn't actually get paid that much like Scott Westerfeld um, shared his advance and at this point like all in all his it, in total he's getting seven figure advances for some of his series but he started out I think getting like a 17,000 advance yeah um, so it was a which, build it wasn't yeah. like 
like a lot from 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 jump and then we have people like i forgot i already forgot the name chip something something oh yeah one book who got like mm-hmm. a bajillion dollars he got eight hundred thousand for one book for one book it was like a, a literary book and i think that i think it's normal for you to feel frustration mm-hmm. towards the system but i think it's really bad when we start like attacking the authors that are sharing for sure that information because at Mm -hmm. the end of the day them sharing is helping us they don't have to share it's shitty if they don't share but they certainly don't (laughs) have to share it's their private business you know um and and them sharing those numbers with us is really helpful because that's how we gauge you know like the disparity and and there was Mm -hmm. like a lot of like like I understand getting mad at something like that and and reading the book and not finding any merit in it I'm sure like that is really frustrating Mm -hmm. but none of us would turn down that kind of money exactly (laughs) um like I mean like you happen to write a book and it and it does well you don't plan on that happening and obviously there's a lot that goes into it he's like a white Mm -hmm. cis man he's in a position to like get the most money but we know that already right we know that those are the people who get the most money Mm -hmm. um so i think that that there's something to be said about expressing your frustration but not being necessarily cruel towards the individual author Mm -hmm. i think our air is it's better when we point it at the systems that make this kind of thing possible yep Agreed. Um, because Agreed. it's not gonna do anything for us to get mad at. at yeah, Chip. for sure. Um, but like we, sh- I, like you're saying, like we should get mad. The system is really messed up, and like mm-hmm. I, there are a lot of think pieces that came out around this. We'll um, we'll post some of them in the show notes. Um, and and there was a lot of people like breaking down, like, okay, you're seeing all these tweets. Let me tell you what these numbers mean. Let me tell you what these patterns mean. Mm-hmm. And I think the most important one for people to see are the ones where they talk about profit and loss um, mm-hmm. reports. So a PNL is what a, a publisher writes up in order to decide how much of an advance a book is worth. Mm-hmm. Um, PNL meaning profit and loss and they each publisher does have like a formula they have like a an actual like spreadsheet thing that they plug in numbers so it sounds scientific right it's actually <laughs> not that scientific <laughs> let me break it it's down fake for you people science. <laughs> it's fake everybody don't trust it um it's pretty much that the numbers once the numbers are in yeah of course it's science is math but to get the numbers is the most bullshit of bullshits. It's pretty much you see a book and you think, okay, what can I compare this book to, to know how much it's worth? If it's a fantasy, they're obviously going to look at other fantasies. They're going to look at ones that are recent. They're going to hopefully find ones that are in-house because they have the numbers, but sometimes they look at comps that are outside of the house, but they'll try to comp it for something as accurate as they think is possible, Mm -hmm. and they'll plug in those numbers in order to anticipate how much they think this book is going to sell. So the problem with this is that if there is a white dystopian fantasy with people with magical powers and royalty they could be like this is just like the red queen i'm gonna plug in the numbers for the red queen and see how much of advances is worth the red queen sold a boatload of books Mm -hmm. in its first printing so that's really good numbers that book is probably going to get a really good advance because they have that amazing comp in-house right Mm -hmm. but what if they were like oh this is a fantasy a dystopian fantasy with royalty and people with magical powers, but it's based on like South Asian culture. And we don't really know what to do with that. And we've never heard of a book like that. Um, We could comp it to the Red Queen, but let's actually comp it to this mid-list South Asian contemporary fantasy, because that's the closest we can get to. And they put in those numbers and that book obviously is just not going to get as much of an advance because they they couldn't find like a good comp for it. They so they went digging for an obscure one and then they, you know, decide that it's worth less. Yeah. And this is a pattern and it is a cycle that continues on itself because as long as they continue to pay books 
by Black, Indigenous, and other POC authors less, then the comps for the future books will continue to be based on lower comps, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's like, as long as you keep on paying us nothing, you're going to continue paying us nothing in the future because that's what you're comping it to. So get your shit together, publishing, is pretty much the message here. And get comps that are... And, and, and buy more books so that you can get more comps to begin with. And then your PL will be slightly more accurate, even though the PL will still be complete bullshit. Right. And also put effort behind those books, too, right? Because, like, they, it just beco- it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. Like, you don't put, like, I remember when Red Queen came out, it was the same year I started working at conferences. And I was like, whoa whatever this book is, it's a big deal because it's <laughs> everywhere. Every single show that I went to, and mm-hmm. I went to like, my first year working at my old job, I went to like 10 shows, including international shows, and it was everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, this book is definitely going to be like a huge success. I'm, I, it must be so good because everyone's talking about it. I didn't know mm-hmm. much about publishing then, you know? I didn't yeah. know that it was just like the publisher pushing the book. And it's like, Obviously, you can't have a huge poster for every single book that you buy, but I feel like so often books by people of color are left behind, and I think they're mm-hmm. left behind because people don't know what to do with them because they don't understand them in the same way that we do. They don't get how to market them, yep. I th- and I think that that's because there's not a lot of people of color in publishing to begin with and in positions of power, um, and I'll give one really good example, which is... Um, DJ from Wednesday Books, who is so incredible at his job. And I, I feel like because he's a person of color, he he has so many different experiences to pull from. And mm-hmm. he's able to see the appeal in things. And I'm really glad that people like him are moving up in publishing. And I hope that that continues throughout because we have to have all of these different kinds of visions and kinds of people at the publishing house in order to to get these books out here i feel like the only way that we're going to get the effort behind these books and like people with the vision and like to understand the audience that it would go to is to have a lot of different kinds of people working in publishing you know what i mean like the other day i was sort of panicking because the YA that i've been working on the my magic system is like to put it quite bluntly, based on the hood, like where I grew up, like the magic comes from acrylic nails, the magic comes from domino games, the magic is based in all of the things that I grew up with. And I'm like, to me, this is really freaking cool. But will somebody who didn't grow up poor understand it? Will somebody who didn't grow up in the kinds of places I grew up in understand it? And that's like another barrier, right? Like a socioeconomic barrier as well, because it's so hard to be poor and work in publishing because you don't get paid much and you have to be in New York and all this crazy stuff. So there's so many different factors that go into it that like we really have to work from the ground up to to restructure everything about publishing and really make Mm -hmm. an effort to have more people of color in place and to for lack of like a, a better system get people out who are who are like racist and who have who aren't willing to work on their biases and um the people who are get them training and just really really work on it it's hard work it's hard work mm-hmm. to undo years of of biases and i think the reason why it's so hard is because it's people who believe they're good people and who deep down they, they're trying to do good things and they don't realize that they're not always doing good things because they have unexamined prejudices within themselves and like we all do right we all have those things so as long as those things exist like we're always going to be at a disadvantage like look at the freaking experiment that they were doing with how pictures are cropped on twitter how like the crop always recognizes white faces over anything darker oh i haven't heard that oh man you have to see it so they they did it with a picture of mitch mcconnell which i hate you mitch mcconnell you are an asshole and (laughs) um and um, we're gonna lose so many listeners i don't care they can go and um (laughs) and obama and it was like uh, it was like a long picture right and like on the two ends 
it would have like Obama and then like Mitch McConnell in the middle and then like it switched it for the next one. So it would have like Mitch McConnell on the two far ends and Obama in the middle. And in every instance, it it centered on Mitch's picture. And they've done it with a lot of different pictures and it keeps focusing on the white face. Well, I think it's also because we like people don't know how to light black faces either for pictures or for film. Like I mean, that's, they don't know how to do the lighting. Part of it, but but I think that the algorithms on so, on social media are very clearly skewed towards oh yeah lighter skin and listen and everything saying, like is racist <laughs> right? Not even on social media do authors of color, particularly black colors, particularly darker skinned black people, have an even playing field. Mm-hmm. everything is uneven and it's yeah, like even ai is against you it's very frustrating and i just really want i i'm hoping that publishing you know huge thank yous to ellen tochi for spearheading this because yeah when some they do something like this it's gonna help all of us you know what i mean yeah and i i really hope that it starts to inspire change and that it also starts to let people see that we're capable of writing these tropes that have been around for a long time and like let us get our shot at it without Mm -hmm. like expecting us to write something that's near perfect like give us a shot to be mediocre and just good you know what i mean like and still get paid (laughs) still get paid like we really have to write these like amazing when you see the the books by people of color get published they're doing so well it's because we have to be so good in order to get to that step. Exceptional. And it's it's like you have to be exceptional. You have to have a brand new take on tropes that white people get to do over and over again. And and that's that's a form of prejudice as well when it comes to like querying and like buying books. And I just really hope people examine that and just pay us more, please. We we cannot create if we're like not able to eat. Yeah. I, and I think like what, what kind of um, plays into this, what kind of plays into this whole entire situation as well is the fact that it's not just about the struggles that you can see and that you could imagine, you know, as someone who has always had a place of privilege, which I, I feel like I, I never grew up hungry, right? So I do have some privilege, right? I've never had to be like, I'm so hungry that I literally can't think. I can't do my homework. I can't, you know, mm-hmm. do these things. Mm-hmm. And some kids have grown up like that. Right. So it's it's that kind of a mindset of being like, it's not just that, you know, black, indigenous, and, and people of color are being paid less, so we have to, like, get a second job. It's like we're being paid less, plus we're dealing with microaggressions, plus we're worrying about how much less we're getting paid for the next paycheck, uh, plus, we're worrying about how much less marketing we're going to get, which affects how much less we get paid for the next paycheck. And then the anxiety and stress of all that magnify and build up on each other, as well as the fact that we're expected to educate everybody else around us about yep. the fact that we're worrying about these things in the first place. And it just like creates more and more and more emotional barriers, mental barriers, and it, 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 it does. It adds up on each other. Like, I know that individually, each of these little instances are, are, could be overcome on their own, right? But, like, when it's all piled on top, it's really bad. And, and it's kind of like you don't know where to even freaking start. Like, where do you start digging yourself out of this? Because there's just so much to, to deal with. And, and that's, I think, the big issue. And I know it feels like you're constantly being inundated with all of these conversations and with different reasons why we're being oppressed. Like, oh, my God, another reason? But, like, that's how we feel, too. Yeah. And, and I was thinking when we were deciding, like, what are we going to talk about today on our pre-chat? And I was like, oh, is it bad that we're talking about another yet another thing about the inequality and inequity no. within publishing. And yeah, exactly what Clarabelle just said. No, it's not because all of these add up, all of these are valid conversations and parts of our identity as two POC authors, as well as the fact that the, there are ongoing issues within publishing. Like us not talking about it isn't going to make it go away. But 
hopefully us talking about it does give you a little bit more insight and that's what we're that's all we're really hoping for Um, and like and 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 on top of like if you're worried and like stressed out about like the political climate like just add that to the list of things that we're also worried about like we're worried about all of the things affecting our career plus everything that's going on with politics it's like it's a wonder that any of us can still write like I'm really proud of us because like we are doing it like despite everything think of all of the people of color whose books have done really well this year all the black authors whose books have hit the list for the first time Mm -hmm. I'm really proud of every single one of us because we've we've gone through hell and we're still here and we're we're doing the damn thing and like that's something worth celebrating in this fucking hellhole of a time Uh, isn't that right? <laughs> totally. But at this, yeah. Also, like, hopefully, even if you're not a BIPOC author or an LGBTQ author or a disabled author or any kind of marginalization, this conversation about P and L statements has been helpful for yeah. you because they really are. It's good to have the so insight. confusing and weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 there's like, I mean, there's a whole other conversation about how you know, the higher paid books are considered more worthy of marketing. So it's like, not just that you're getting paid less. It's just that you're like, okay, so you're going to give me no marketing, but that's a different conversation as well. There's a lot that it's tears. It's like, it's steps. They all pile onto each other. Yep. So, but we, yeah. Yay. Welcome to publishing everyone. (laughs) Take a seat. You're going to need it. You need your rest. We have snacks. We do have snacks and water. When an enemy hires Arden Finch without realizing who she is, Arden risks everything to claim her forbidden elemental magic. Set in a supernatural North Carolina, Elemental is book one in a diverse new urban fantasy series. Kirkus Reviews calls Elemental a genuine page turner and gave the sequel, Eldritch Sparks, a starred review. Find Elemental at your favorite bookstore or save 10% when you buy directly from the author with code WOD10 at whwrites.com shop. This week's guest is Chloe Gong. She is a student at the University of Pennsylvania studying English and international relations. During her breaks, she's either at home in New Zealand or visiting her many relatives in Shanghai. Chloe has been known to mysteriously appear when Romeo and Juliet is one of Shakespeare's best plays and doesn't deserve its slander in pop culture, is chanted into a mirror three times. (laughs) Hi, Chloe. How are you? I'm good. Hello. How are you guys? Thank you for having me here. Of course. So I love your bio. To have it's you. so funny. Yeah. <laughs> I, Thank you. Second, but I was just like, okay, okay. I totally get it. I'm with it. Um, also, yeah, I, I had a chuckle to myself when I was writing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like I need to give you total kudos for juggling school, writing and debuting, and the world currently <laughs> at the same time oh the entire world yeah it's it's a struggle but we're getting there one day at a time <laughs> we truly are we really are <laughs> um do you want to kind of give us a little bit of a breakdown about how you fell in love with writing how you got your agent how you got this book deal for this fantastic sounding why book just give us the total story (laughs) yes okay the total story I'll completely rewind back to the day I was well no I won't do that um I started writing uh at the the last okay how does this go when I finished the first year of high school is when I first started writing because I was so bored is how I got my start so I always the, the way that I got inspired for the first book I wrote was actually I was in China visiting my grandparents and because of the great firewall there and everything and how social media is completely blocked because like but when I was in high school I was already addicted to social media because that's just how this generation is I guess um I so I couldn't go on like Facebook or anything so I was just so bored that I decided to write because I loved reading so much and I'd run out of books because I couldn't bring that much with me. So I literally just decided to write 
on the notes app in my iPad. And I was just kind of like, it was, it was really strange in the sense that it, I, when I started writing, I didn't have the same like attitude that I do now where like I get an idea and I try to like carry it out through the end. Like back then it was almost kind of like, I'm just going to tell myself the story to like entertain me. Like I don't really care where it goes. I don't really care if I can finish it. I don't even really care about like what, where the general trajectory is going. I just, I just want to entertain myself like for the time being. So like that was kind of the way I started. And just because I had that, like, I'm only going to entertain myself kind of attitude, like it, was so easy in a sense to just like write down like absolute like just just a mess of a story that honestly like didn't make any logical sense really but like it was still a story in the end um so that was how like my first couple of manuscripts honestly came to be so this was like throughout the entirety of like high school this was very like stretched out I didn't write like a lot because like there wasn't that much time to always be writing but whenever I was like bored and I wanted to entertain myself I would just be like throwing things down and like collecting up manuscripts that was like slowly helping me like get better at writing I guess um but then I did that for almost like all of my high school days and then by the time I got to college I think I was finally like at this point where I was like, well, actually, maybe I can write now. Like, I think I've done it so much that now it does make some logical sense as opposed to the first few where I was like, oh, I'm just going to entertain myself. It doesn't really, it doesn't have to make sense. So when I wrote These Violent Delights, it was the first book that I actually thought could well, I, it was the first book that I thought did seem like something that could get published because, like, I, I was reading so much as well. So I was like, you know, like, I've absorbed so much of what, like, is actual, like, what what is appearing on the shelves. This does seem like it could go somewhere. So um, I that was the first book I queried and it went from there. That's awesome. I... I kind of love the idea that you wrote books at first for yourself. Like you wrote them to be messy and you didn't care about that. I feel like that's advice that people try to give authors all the time now. And authors are like, I can't, I'm too stuck in my method and my ways. But like, yeah, that's the, good, that's I, the way to be. And, and I think it was because I didn't know any better because like back then it wasn't like I was plugged into like a circuit or anything of like other people who were, taking their craft seriously like it didn't even occur to me that it was something I could do and like in a way I'm really glad I started out like that because it gave me like the space to really like find what I wanted to do before I like gave myself any pressure to be good at it if that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah that makes a lot of sense to me and like you have to have fun at some point in the process right because publishing is really rough so so at least while you're writing if you can like entertain yourself like you said make yourself laugh I think that's really important to try to find joy in those moments um so for anybody who doesn't know what these violet delights are about can you tell us a little bit about the book yes okay so my short little pitch is um these violent delights is a Romeo and Juliet retelling by way of the godfather and it's set in 1920s gangster rule Shanghai. So the story goes um, when a mysterious illness starts devastating the city and rumors speak of a monster being the cause, uh, two former childhood lovers turned enemies from rival gangs have to set aside the blood feud between them and work together and put a stop to it. I love that. I love that so much. <laughs> it has so many things that are like such juicy kind of little tidbits about it. Mm. Um, is it dual is it dual POV just from my curiosity or is it just uh, one POV? Or is it It is it's many. It's like oh. Yeah. <laughs> I like that a lot. Yay. Excited. 
And you have a gorgeous cover, I have to oh, say. Like love the cover. Beautiful I design. Love it so much. I just, a plus. honestly I don't know I don't know how the team did it. It's just it's like magic. They they made some deal with some devil. It had to be him. <laughs> it's just it's beautiful. Maybe it was Shakespeare's ghost. Maybe. Oh my god. He rose up, he was, <laughs> he rose up, he was like my reputation relies on this. <laughs> it's well, really, really pretty. It definitely like gives great homage to him, even in the title, obviously, um, the Shakespeare line. Um, and I know that in your bio, it kind of says like you obviously adore Romeo and Juliet. Um, it seems like you're a huge champion of this story. So I'm just wondering, like, how did you fall in love with this play exactly? And and how did you kind of come up with the idea of setting it in a historical Shanghai setting? Like, how did that click into place for you? Oh, my God. It's it's honestly, like, kind of wild how it came together because I hadn't really, like, paid, like, like, it wasn't that I was, like, super, super in love with Romeo and Juliet and then I went the retelling aspect, but rather that I'd always really liked Shakespeare because his use of language is so beautiful. Like, I, I know, like, because Shakespeare is taught so much in schools, like, in general, people find him really stuffy because, like, honestly, I think a lot of the times he's just not taught well, but that's, like, its whole other, like, tangent. But his his language use is just so beautiful. And I love, like, good, like, crunchy, maybe crunchy is the wrong word to use. I love good, like, prose that you can, like, really, like, grab like it's just it feels good to put your eyes on it um so because I like loved his like sense of work and all that when I got the idea to so the first part of the idea for these Valentines that actually came to me was writing about a blood feud so I was like well what can I really do with the story and what like what am I actually trying to say I guess was what I was going for and then like, in some way, I don't really know how the wire is connected, but somehow I was like, well, if I'm going to do a blood feud, maybe I should, like, go to Romeo and Juliet and, like, reimagine it. I feel like that would be cool. Like, that was just my thought process. And then I kind of, I reread Romeo and Juliet when I decided to do that. And, like, it was on that reread. I was kind of like, wow, he, Shakespeare really said something in this. Like, he was really making, like, a lot of good points. <laughs> And I was like, hmm, maybe, like, I could do something with this, too. So that kind of became, like, the core idea where I was like, I will write about a blood feud and make it Shakespearean. And then I kind of connected that to 1920 Shanghai because then I was looking for, like, a setting for it. And a blood feud being, like, so messy and, like, just a lot of violence happening, I was like, this feels suited for the background that of Shanghai that I already know and I'm already really interested in it so because like once I did research into it it was like okay well there was so much going on at this time the streets were gangster ruled there was like colonizers everywhere there was like imperialism there was all this domestic politics and I was like Shakespeare would really love this so it just it all meshed together and it felt very um felt very delightfully violent <laughs> hence the title <laughs> <laughs> um so the next question was actually going to be about the the era that you chose to put it in because you, you made so many interesting choices that i think are what make the premise of the book so appealing um but you said that you did obviously research what was your research process like what did you do did you do anything interesting or weird i go on site anywhere like what what uh what what was that whole process like for you it was so the research on this is it, it kind of got split into like the historical dimension and then the shanghai dimension so because all of my family are from shanghai so my parents immigrated with me when i was two so I still have like a lot of um relatives back there and occasionally like when we go back to visit like I already like know quite a lot about the city so that was kind of like my starting basis um but in all the times that where I did go back all of my like strange field work I was kind of like 
I, I would be like to my dad, like, hey, if we have a free day, can we go to like that, um, like that building from the 1920s? And he'll be like, why? But okay. And like, the good thing is that not much has like changed in modern day Shanghai because they still like preserve a lot of the like the aesthetic of the buildings, even though like inside, like the atmosphere is completely different. But um, the funniest part of the research is that I I checked out a lot of the like places in the book. Oh, actually, after I honestly, I think it was after multiple drafts. Um, I, I think I was signed with my agent already by the time I was back there, like on vacation, looking around. And the funniest part was there's this one building in the book where the characters are like running for their lives through, like it's like this frantic chase. And I like just described the building as like a regular building. And then I showed up in real life and I walked in and I was like, oh no, this this building is donut shaped. Like there's a hollow inside. None of this makes sense. Um, so that was just the most bizarre thing that I didn't think would require research and yet. So then after that, I like went back and I emailed my agent and I was like, so I'm gonna do a tiny revision because the building is uh, hollow. And then I just like I just changed a few lines and sent it back to her. Um, but with yeah, so that was just like the Shanghai part of it. But the actual like research where I actually did seriously was like the historical part of it. Mm-hmm. So because I kind of um, like I it is I do make up a lot of things, but I tried to stick really closely with the um, the actual like timeline when it came to like the civil war that would come up and um, a lot of like the communist revolution. So because like I didn't have that much knowledge of like the specifics that went on, I would like go sit in the library and just comb through like a lot of the primary sources, Um, which was honestly, it's really bizarre because on one hand, I was almost grateful that there was such a heavy foreign presence in Shanghai at the time because it meant that um, there were a lot of English sources for me to go through because like I can't read Chinese very well so it wasn't that like I could go into the Chinese resources and then I would just sit there and be like oh I'm so mad that there are English sources because it means that there was just so much colonization (laughs) but then I'm so glad I have it so I can learn it was very just a split opinion it's the struggle of the diaspora writer. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. Like, I want the historical resources, but I also hate what you did to my country. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly it. Um, but that's I mean, that sounds that sounds so great and interesting. I, I I'm fascinated by the fact that you literally wrote a scene and had to rewrite it after going to visit uh-huh. the location. I think that's actually really, really cool. Write or Die is brought to you in part by T Public. Tee Public is home to independent art on stickers, cases, shirts, and more. Check out our Write or Die store at tpublic.com slash stores slash Write or Die podcast. Check it out now. I know that obviously you're debuting this year, 2020. Um, and you're also, are you in the United States right now for school? I am. I am. Okay. I'm living, so my school technically closed, but I'm living off campus, so they can't kick me off. <laughs> oh gosh. So there's obviously a lot of different things you're juggling right now. You're you're in your last year of university. You are debuting. You're trying to stay safe. Um, I kind of feel like we are doing this a lot with our 2020 de- debut guests, but we want to do a mental health check-in, see how you're doing. And also if you have any self-care tips for our listeners, then feel free to give those as well. Ooh. That is a good question. I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) Hmm. I think my biggest self-care tip is that sometimes I'll just stop, like, I'll stop having, like, expectations for what I want to do in the day. Like, I feel like prior to everything becoming so messy, like, I was a very strict, like, I'll, um, I'll, I'll like stick to this like routine, like in a day, like I have to get this stuff done. I have to get all that stuff done. But like with just the world and chaos, like sometimes I'll be like, I don't really feel like 
finishing all of this today, which is not to say like I abandoned my homework or anything. Like I'll be like, if I don't really want to do it today, like I'm just going to, I'll like spread it out through the next few weeks. It doesn't, it's not that big of a deal. Like if the, if the world ends, I'm not going to remember my homework. Um, yeah, it's, it's like, That's right. <laughs> yeah, it like just, if if I feel like it, I'll just lay down and scroll TikTok for like three hours. I feel like that's healthier on me than like staring at my essay for two hours. Yeah, I I told I am on board with that. I don't think people should force themselves right now, uh, especially you're juggling so much. Like you're juggling school, an author career, and like everything being on fire. So. It's not, yeah, it's not easy. It's definitely not. Um, I like those tips. Um, I've noticed on Twitter that people are already sort of like picking sides for your book. Like people who can, can you explain a little bit what's going on there? What side should I pick? like? Where would me and Cat go first of all? And oh, yeah, like sort of into the side. <laughs> oh my god, this is so. And did you expect Ooh. people to like? get into it this soon like people are like are like yelling about it already I really like seeing that <laughs> it's amazing it's on 10 I love it I'm, I'm like really pleased like I really didn't <laughs> expect people to like get so passionate about it but they're like really like up like um Zoe Hana uh who's a 2021 debut uploaded a video of herself throwing a knife and I was like damn I just, <laughs> this is real blood feed stuff that's so um, cool <laughs> it, I was I was shook um but yeah it's it was kind of I wanted to make it sort of like a street team kind of thing but like more casual because I didn't like want the big commitment of it so I was just like yeah guys sign up you can choose Scarlet Gang or White Flowers which is the two gangs in the book which so Juliet belongs to the Scarlet Gang and Roma belongs to the White Flowers um and I honestly didn't even really describe them, but then people just picked sides and now they're like willing to like die for the side. And I was just, I was like, this is amazing. I am so beholden to witness this. Um, let me think. I don't know what, hmm. I think, I don't know if it's because Clarabelle, you're like pink hair aesthetic, but I feel like you would like vibe with the Scarlet Gang. Like, like for the, that. just for, for the like, red pink aesthetic and then i feel like i feel like by virtue cat should be white flowers so you guys can have like a star crossed we can fight yeah (laughs) (laughs) i like that fights are like over who like gets the last chicken nugget i was just gonna say it's about chicken it's always about chicken nuggets it's really that's like what you boil down our personalities to it's like chicken nuggets and our love of chicken nuggets and now i really want chicken nuggets so no thank you i i love i i love that like clever i can never be the same thing because anytime anyone sorts us, they're like, you have to be different things. And I was like, why can't we be the same thing? But I kind of like it. I kind of like how it how it forces us to, like, really choose sides. Um, what would you – what side would you take, Chloe? If you had to, you have to pick it. Oh, my God. I truly, honestly, it, it's just – it's so tough. I, I feel like – oh, my God. No, I – when does this go live? Because I feel like if this goes live while it's going on, people are be like, "Yes, victory for this side." Um, um, this goes out November thirtieth. You okay? So instead of instead of picking a, a side, tell us your like number one favorite thing about each gang. <laughs> this is a much easier question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think. My favorite thing about the Scarlet Gang would be their aesthetic because they're very much they're they're old, so they've been around for a long, a long, long time. So they have like their mansions like out outside of the city. They have their like burlesque clubs. They have their like cabarets. So all of that like with the like dripping scarlet red kind of like red and gold. All of that. It's just very like it's very visually pleasing when I like see in my mind's eye and I think my favorite thing about the white flowers is how 
just out there they are because they're the new ones in this well then they're not new they've been here for a few generations as well but their backstory is that they came in um fleeing russian civil unrest so the majority of them are russian um and because of that like they like find their place in the city in like the apartment blocks they're very like congregated together they don't have like a hierarchy like the scarlet gang do they're very like I'll fight my way up to the top. So I like them for their attitude. They're more, it seems like they're more chaotic. Mm. Wait, so does this mean that you find Clarabelle beautiful and me chaotic? (laughs) In the best way. (laughs) Chaotic is a compliment in this house. It is. Yeah, that's actually a legit compliment. I will take it. Okay, Chloe, so everyone who's been on the podcast tells us either their most embarrassing publishing-related story or something they wish they'd known before they started. You could do either or. You could do both. It's up to you. So I actually tried really, really hard to think of an embarrassing story because I loved hearing, like, other people's embarrassing (laughs) stories. But I think the tragic thing is because lockdown in 2020 happened so early, like, most of my, like, author career just hasn't like I haven't associated with anyone like in real life so I've had less chances to be embarrassing which I'm really upset about because now I don't have a story so you want to make one right now let's do something (laughs) embarrassing let's do it (laughs) I don't even know what to do to embarrass myself I just my entire existence I guess is embarrassing enough but like no no like one incident um yeah, so I guess I have to go with what I wish I knew, um, which that I do have something for. I, not so much in the sense that, like, it, it's some, like, big lesson that I wish I learned, but, like, something to, like, something that, like, me just starting out, like, in the, like, writing community, like, I wish I knew, actually, that it, it that it's quite small. And, like, once you actually, like, sort of get into it, like, it's really easy just to be, like, oh, like, you know, so-and-so, oh, I know so-and-so. And then it's, like, it just feels very, like, small. And it's, like, a comforting thing rather than a, like, big, scary... No, it wouldn't be a big, scary thing. It's a comforting thing rather than, like, a, ooh, you know so-and-so, if that makes sense. Like, it's, like, it's, like... Comforting more than intimidating, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Like, once you know one once you know a few people in the publishing industry like you know a lot more people than you think you do and it's like it it just feels very like tight-knit and more than you know this big thing that you can't really understand once you're in yeah I I I think that that makes a lot of sense and I think a lot of people don't realize like how small uh it is and I think once you go to like a real uh like an in-person conference that becomes like really evident, uh, especially one of the big ones where you can literally see almost every single person from it's like highly visible on book Twitter. Um, it's like, it's, hey, my entire timeline. It's, yeah, it's, exactly. it's quite funny. It's quite funny. That's why exactly. I always like tell people like, hey, don't say anything on Twitter that you wouldn't say to someone's face <laughs> if you're an author because you're probably going to see them at some point. So just be okay with that. And if you are, that's cool. But like, just know it's going to happen. Um, <laughs> Bring up the most random things that you'll say on Twitter. And you'll be like, you were paying attention. Oh, no. (laughs) No. You know what's the weirdest thing? We talk so much on this podcast. I remember what I say. I really don't. And people will be like, you know, in this episode where you said this thing, it was just like, it really resonated with me. And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. Like, I can't be expected to remember both my books and everything that I say on here. It's impossible. It's so hard. But But that's the thing, too, is like... It's like a, it's so funny because there are a lot of authors who like, you'll go up to them, you'll be like, oh, what did you mean with this side character that showed up in your book that you wrote three years ago? And they're like, looking at you like, what the hell are you talking about? (laughs) And you're like, oh, you have no idea who this character is anymore. You have moved past it and I have not. And I am okay with that. That's okay. But um, I think it's, yeah, <laughs> but it's cool. I, I, I like it. I like how, you know, interested we are in each other's opinions it can backfire sometimes but <laughs> yeah no no community yeah. is perfect you know what yeah. i mean 
And especially like when you're learning the ropes, like when you're first starting out, and like when we started on book Twitter, it was the Wild West. Like it's <laughs> way no, no one knew what the hell they were doing. So much tamer than it used to be. I'll tell you that much. And I, it was even worse before that. Like like one Twitter generation before us, it was even worse. So uh, yeah, Twitter's weird, but. We're glad you're there. I I enjoy your I enjoy your shit posting, Chloe. Oh Uh, yeah, it's so funny. I take I take pride in it. (laughs) Yeah, your Twitter presence is 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 quite the delight. So I I I would say keep on keeping on because you're doing you're definitely doing something right there. It's Um, quite the delight because she's the author of. I think I was talking about old timey things. I've I've morphed into, uh, like a gentleman. Um, scholar from the, from the 1920s. You're such a weirdo. <laughs> Why would you say that? Let me live my life. <laughs> right? Okay? What Chicken nuggets. Scarlet Gang, the we're taking feud. it to the street. Blood feud. Yeah. Blood feud, we're fighting. And I'm literally going to win, bro. Nugget. I'm established. My aesthetic is on point. Yeah, you're, you're old. Your time is done. Okay? Old means wise, okay? Being young just means you don't know shit. Means denial. <laughs> My powers are coming for you. I cannot. Come, come then. <laughs> we're, we're gonna take this That's to Twitter. That's the battle cry. That's the battle cry. <laughs> come then. Come at me, bro. <laughs> um, okay, Chloe. It has been a delight to have you on the podcast. It How many times have we said delight? What? <laughs> Say my words, Clarabelle. We've said delight words. so many times. It's been wonderful to have you on the podcast. It's been amazing. It's been a feast for our ears. <laughs> I know. But let me get to my point. Everyone know where they can find you on the internet. They can find me living everywhere on the internet. I am at the Chloe Gong just about everywhere. Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Yes. And my website. Yes. Amazing. Yay. And so by the time this goes up, the book, These Violence Delight, these, whoa, my goodness, words. <laughs> because I'm so heated still. <laughs> <laughs> Let me try that again. By the time this episode is up, These Violent Delights will be in bookstores everywhere. So you guys know what to do. Buy your prerequisite 20 copies. 20 copies. It's required. So thank you so much, <laughs> Chloe, for being on the podcast. We had so much fun, even so though now Clarabelle and I must fight to the death. We're going to fight. Whoever <laughs> wins gets chicken nuggets. Me. Of course. <laughs> and best it of was... luck with debut and with school and everything. We hope it goes amazing. Thank you. It was my pleasure to make you two blood enemies. <laughs> this is your doing, Chloe. Whatever. Yeah. Whichever... When Rider Die turns into like the chaos that it is, everyone can track it back to this episode. This moment. This very moment. Thanks for listening to Ride or Die. Be sure to check out Wicked Fox by Kat Cho. And Ghost Squad by Clarabelle A. Ortega. And while you're at it, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. See you next time, Wordies. And don't forget to spread the word.